everyday injustice. Too many wrongful convictions, corruption has infected the criminal justice system. Leaving too many people helpless, fighting for their lives instead of receiving justice, people suffer. Is that why they say justice is blind? Hello and welcome to the Everyday Injustice Podcast. I'm your host, David Greenwald. For the past 10 years, we have operated Vanguard Court Watches in California, including San Francisco, Sacramento, and Yolo counties. Our goal? Expose everyday court injustices, and now, more broadly, shine a spotlight on injustices in the entire criminal justice system, in the form of wrongful convictions, police and prosecutorial misconduct, and mass incarceration. This podcast hopes to take it a step further and highlight criminal justice reform on a national level. Everyday injustice. Today on Everyday Injustice, we have San Joaquin County District Attorney Tori Verber Salazar. Um, and she's rather unique in uh, the district attorney world. Um, Many of the reformers in the space of uh, progressive district attorneys are kind of like me, left liberals, but she's not, um, which uh, makes her very intriguing from my perspective. So welcome to our show. Thank you, David. I'm honored to be here and I'm looking forward to the conversation. So I've heard this story before, but uh, I think it bears uh, repeating. How is it that you came uh, to be a reformer uh, in your line of work? Well, prior to being elected, I was a member of the gang homicide team and prosecuted a number of cases over the last few decades um, in which such tremendous harm occurs to a community. One family has lost a loved one and will go to the cemetery to visit them. And the other family has lost a loved one and will go to the jail or prison um, to see that individual. And, and yet, even though these families grew up together, they were friends, they went to the same school, things occurred in their teenage years and their adult life, and they just went in a different direction. And the ability to make good, sound, healthy decisions seemed to be lost. And the harm and the generational harm for not just the immediate family, but for all of the families and friends and neighborhoods, you could see for years and years to come. And I thought, we, you know, we have to do something better here. We have to take a look at what we're doing. And we have, as government, we should always be challenging ourselves. Can we do this better? How can we create a safer, better platform going forward? And what do we do with people that are struggling with substance use, uh, alcoholism, addiction, mental health, and poverty, which is in every family in America? Every family has one relative, if not many more, who are struggling with these issues and is incarceration for a, a health-related matter the right way to treat it? Um, and are we making people better? And can we do more to prevent um, any of this catastrophic harm? So we looked kind of at the totality of the entire criminal justice system and said, okay, no matter what, we never say these words. Well, we've always done it that way. Instead, we're going to say, how can we do each step of the way better? How can we create a place where people believe in us, have trust and transparency with us, who want to be a part of the solution, who want to create that change, and still protect our community, 
our public safety and ensure our victims and our survivors have every tool and resource to become well and healthy. So we started from ground zero and said, where, where do we begin? We're going to challenge every step of the criminal justice system because we know research has shown us it just was not working. The data has shown us it's not working. The ability to achieve the success and the goals that we want, we weren't able to do. You had 70% recidivism rate. So the, the methods and the way that we were doing things wasn't working. And we just had to have that courage and say, okay, we see it, we hear it, we know it, and we're going to find a better pathway going. And that's what we built. And so what does that look like on the ground? Like if I walked into your court, uh, what would I see that's different in San Joaquin County that I might not see in other counties? Well, we have a number of collaborative um, partnerships. So we have the collaborative courts that we can um, work with people that are in crisis due to um, mental health related issues, substance abuse related issues, poverty related we can place them and do more of a rehabilitative approach where we're really treating the core issue and not thinking that putting somebody in a jail for 5, 10, 15 days is going to cure homelessness, is going to cure mental health, is going to make sure that you're no longer addicted. It's, that's, it's not a light on crime. It's a very smart on crime because we spend a lot of money and resources doing it the old way with terrible results and data has shown and proven over and over and over again that it just simply did not work um, because we weren't treating the core issues. We weren't treating the past trauma that hasn't been addressed and, and, and worked on. We haven't you know, done the research to or the, the capabilities to treat the mental health, substance use and, and poverty. So we instead of spending you know, $2,500, which is what it takes for me to get a case to a misdemeanor arraignment, um, and to say, okay, you're going to go to the county jail or you're going to get alternative work program where you're picking up trash. None of that treated the underlining cause for the behavior that was occurring. None of it said, okay, what, why is this occurring? What is happening? Um, and, a, and a prime example is I had a gentleman who set fires, not to any building, just set fires. There was an abandoned house and he was pounding on the door and there was some reason he had some sort of connection or nexus to this house. It was boarded up. And he set a fire next to it, and it partially, uh, you know, blackened the side of the wall, if you will, from the, the fire. He was arrested for arson, which is a felony. Um, it's a 16-2-3 type, 16 months, two or three year type of sentence. He doesn't have an extensive criminal history. The the public defender indicated that he was, you know, struggling with mental health and competency. So we sent him down south to a competency training program for eight months. And what they have to do is to get the individual up to a point where they can understand the nature of the charges against them and assist in their defense. And after eight months, they had done that. He was able to answer the simplest of questions like, what does the judge do? What is your, do you know who your attorney is? And do you know why you're here? Nobody treated him for, why are you setting fires? What is the untreated trauma you have? And by the time he came back, he was credit for time served. He had done 50% of the time of his sentence and he was released. We spent $125,000 on that programming to get him competent for trial, but not to address the underlining issue of his mental health that was causing him to set these fires. And he went right back out. So what did we do? How did we make that better? We removed him for society for eight months, so that took some pressure off us for these fires. But 
in the end, did we return them to our community in, in a better place and in a safer place? And until we get serious about this conversation of what happens when you're in a county jail and a state prison and how rehabilitation has to drive that, we're going to keep returning people to the community in worse shape than they were when they went in. And we had a, another similar case where it was an 18-year-old young man who did a robbery, you know, and, and it was a shocking crime. His father was the police chief in another county. And so he pled to the felony, took a stride. What I think is so important is that nobody in America wants this. Nobody wants somebody to go into the criminal justice system and come out worse. Nobody wants to further traumatize people that simply need services such as mental health, uh, maybe medication, uh, rehabilitation services, and economic resources to lift them up. In America, we want everybody to be successful. We want them in in a home where there's safety and there's support. And in order to do that, we're going to have to work collaboratively and get away from the past commentary that doing harm is treated by more harm doesn't work. What we need to be doing is saying, okay, we have a person that's clearly in crisis. They're unable to filter the decision-making and cognitive behavior to make sound reason decisions. They're harming their family. Because I guarantee you, when somebody commits a crime, the first victim is their family. They just don't call 911 because family doesn't call unless it gets so bad. And so when they go out and they commit that crime in your community, there's already been a lot of harm and trauma. So this individual is establishing some sort of pattern where there is something going wrong. How do we treat them? I have no problem prosecuting people and removing them from society in order to protect. But when we do that, we need to be ensuring the same public that we're going to make them better, not worse. And everybody Everybody in America, whether you're a victim, survivor or not, wants that. And if you look at the research from the Brennan Center on victims, their number one thing and the number one thing every victim I think I've ever worked for said is, I don't care what happens to him. Just make sure he doesn't do it to somebody else again. That's their and it's amazingly kind and generous of survivors because they could be demanding other things, but they just want to make sure that that never happens again. And in order for us to say we can do that, we have to invest in services. We have to invest in getting people well. Otherwise, we're just giving a very expensive, very, very expensive timeout and giving them a pause because we know most people will be released from incarceration. Yeah, and I I think to dovetail on that point, um, we spend somewhere around $85,000 each year to incarcerate one individual and that's the cost of a Harvard education for one year. Um, so it seems like we're, we're not spending the money on the right end of this. Exactly. And, and, but then you have to balance that out because people want to feel safe and they want to know that the person that caused harm is held accountable and consequences. So you can hold people accountable and you can hold them to the consequences for the harm that they've caused. But what you want to do is figure out how and what that looks like, and then how do we make them better so that they don't do it again? They've already done it, so we've missed any opportunity we had to change that course, to change that history. I'm always after the fact. I'm after the harm. So how do I create a system in which I can prevent the harm from occurring, and then how do I build a system when the harm occurs 
that does everything possible to make sure, first and foremost, my, my community safe, my survivors and victims are getting every tool and resource for health and healing, and how do I figure out how to make this individual better? Because if I don't, we're telling society they're going to come back out and create another victim. And so all of the costs associated with that across the board is, is of no use of no value to creating a better, safer community. And so we, we really are looking at how do we deal with that? Um, how, do we, how do we create that space? And, and it's difficult in a climate where whenever you're talking about criminal justice, somebody wants to put a label on you. You're either light on crime, you don't care about victims, you're not concerned about public safety, you're more concerned with the defendants. All of that doesn't do any good. As a matter of fact, it's a cop-out because it doesn't allow us to have the conversation and we need to have these tough conversations. And I think what's so critical is most people don't understand the criminal justice system until they're involved in it because we no longer treat, teach, excuse me, we no longer teach civics in the, in the classroom. And so a lot of times when people become engaged in the criminal justice system, it's their first foray into it. Just like when you get into jury duty, it's usually your first time and you're like, well, Hey, how does this all work? What's going to happen here? How do I do this? And we need to do a better job at educating our community that democracy, one of the key components of democracy is the criminal justice in the courts, because it's what keeps us from running into other forms of government that are extremely dangerous. But it also is there to serve the public to ensure that we are safe and that we do take care of our victims. But in order to do so, we have to have that courage and say, okay, what do we do with the people that cause harm? How do we fix them? Because if we get them healthy and well, and we re-enter them back into society, because they're going to go back to their families. And remember, the family was the first victim. So they're going to go back to their very first victims, the family who has, has endured the harm and, and maybe the fear and terror that they've inflicted. They're going right back there. How do we send them back there with better tools and resources to be a better person, to be a better father, a better mother, a better sister, a better community member, and a better parent? Because if we don't, what if we told that whole family is, yes, we arrested your loved one. Yes, we prosecuted him and we sent him away to the county jail or state prison. And yes, we're going to give him back to you in worse shape. Why would you believe in our system? Why would you have faith in us? So we have to deliver a better return on our investment. And our investment is in criminal justice to make people safer. And to make them safer, you have to have this conversation about what are you going to do with those who cause the harm. So can you describe what's, uh, what the current climate is like in San Joaquin County in terms of crime, you know, murders, things like that? Sure. San Joaquin County is the best county in the state of California. And I, it's a privilege and honor to work for the people because they're good, hardworking people who never give up. They get mad, they get frustrated and they speak out, but they never give up and they never stop working to find a better place and a better solution. And we were hit in the eighties and seventies and eighties by crime. Uh, you know, we had a dual vocational institution here. We had California youth authority, Northern California got a disproportionate amount of prisons and uh, youth facilities than any place else. And we received a lot of, of influx of people coming in. And what happened is we had Southern California come to Northern California in facilities like dual vocational institution, commonly referred to as DBI. 
And we saw a, a level of crime we've never seen before, organized crime, gangs, the sales and transportation of narcotics, um, and serious, serious narcotics that were going to really be a disruptor in the families and into the core of who we are and what we were about. And we also have the major corridors of 99 and I-5, and we're a good stop halfway between the state, if you will, if you're going to deliver some sort of uh, illegal um, items. So we saw this change from this small town, uh, ag town, to this much more complex uh, criminal element that we had never seen really before, and we weren't prepared for it. And we've basically been chasing it ever since and trying to clean it up and correct it. And so we went to what we all do is let's be tougher. Let's be harder. Let's do more. Let's, you know, um, get in there and do everything we can, which is in theory is right. We should be doing everything we can and we do everything we can to ensure public safety, but we relied upon tools where we didn't have data or research that supported their success. We didn't kind of self-reflect and self-monitor ourselves and say, okay, is it do doing it the old way? Is it better? Is it working? And as a matter of fact, when I first started in here and when I was first elected back in 2015, we had zero data. And so we had to say, okay, wait a minute here. Is it making a difference? Is it working? And what does that look like? And so we worked in partnerships with law enforcement to take a look at everything we were doing, every stop, every arrest, every... Um, opportunity we had to engage with the community, and we all built data systems. And of course, and I highly recommend you look at our data as well. We produced our first data report, was, which was going to go out in 2020, but with COVID, we moved it to 21. And it allowed us to say, okay, where are we on this journey? Are we, is it working? What are our results? What are our neighborhoods that are most impacted? How can we get more resources? What do we do after a major crime such as a homicide occurs? And we go into that neighborhood and we knock on doors and we talk to people and we say, we have counseling, we have services. We bring food just as a way to, food is just a great way to start a conversation with somebody. Um, and so we try to use, we've learned from the, that data and learned from those um, tools. But since 2015, I've been a reform-minded prosecutor. And in 17, 18, and into 19, we saw... Um, a 40% drop in homicides. So reform works. Everybody forgets to mention that part. Now, COVID came and COVID spiked our homicide up um, significantly, significantly. And that's, um, I think, across the nation. I, I was with DAs from all over the United States, and they're all struggling with this issue. And we as a society have to look at that data and learn so that if we have another pandemic or another major episode in our country in which people are going to go home and be isolated and have fear, which are two major components of triggering anxiety and depression, and what do we do to make sure they're healthy and well? And we should have been doing more in the neighborhoods. We should have been walking and talking and, and getting tools and resources to families because where we saw the spike was in family violence. We saw we averaged about one to two um, domestic violent related homicides in maybe one child fatality. We had 15 family violence and three children were, uh, were lost. And we can never have that. And we can never tolerate that. And we didn't see it. Um, and we just didn't have the tools and the resources across the nation to say, whoa, 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 I, I understand we're getting economic resources. It's great. We're not going to be moving people around. We're not driving people into homelessness. We're keeping people going, even though they're not working. That's all wonderful. But what we missed as a mark, as a nation, 
was how's everybody's mental health? Because your mental health is in crisis when you make a decision to do that kind of harm. I'm not saying that's an excuse. I'm just saying it's a factor. And if you don't treat the mental health, then the risk of harm continues to increase and continues to escalate. So we really needed to, to learn from this, and we, we need to build a better way forward so that if we're ever faced with this kind of catastrophic you know, uh, situation such as the pandemic was, where it changed who, what, where, when, and how we lived every day, that we have the tools and resources inside to make sure that every family is healthy and well. And, uh, and so I believe that once we get out of this pandemic and we're starting to see uh, our homicide rate is down from last year, but in order for us to get back down to 40, 50, 60, and my goal is to get to zero, um, is, is when this pandemic ends, I think we'll have even, even more opportunities. So I, I, I think as, an, as a nation, we should have been better prepared for the mental health component of this COVID. And I think, you know, I, I heard a doctor one day talk, there's, you know, five big factors in looking at yourself when, you, when you're evaluating whether you're struggling with mental health. And two of the five are isolation and fear. And what did COVID do? It isolated and it made us afraid because we had never experienced it. We didn't know how to treat it. Um, and we didn't know how, what was the right decision and the wrong decision. And so it, it, two of the big five, we did as a nation to our citizens. So we should have said, wait, 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 we're also going to help you with your mental health at, with the same equal force that we did with economics. So. Um, and I, I just wanted to set the scene in case people are unfamiliar. So San Joaquin County is a large county. Um, it's got uh, around three quarters of a million people. Uh, the largest city is Stockton, which has just over 300,000 people. And it's what, an hour, 45 minutes south of Sacramento in the Central Valley, just, just so people have the context if they're not from uh, Northern California. Um, and, and you said it feels like um, the uh, murders are going down uh, from last year. So, so do you feel like, because we're dealing with this issue everywhere, right? Um, you know, with murders spiking, all of a sudden, all these reform efforts are kind of under fire. Do you feel like this is going to go back to, I, I hate to use the word normal because we've been talking about that for two years. And I don't know if we're ever going to go back to normal, uh, but do you feel like, you know, there's going to be a post-pandemic period where, where we're back kind of where we were before in terms of murders, or do you feel like there's something that's going to be systemic there? I think that, you know, COVID has, has obviously had very, you know, many negative impacts, but it's also given us incredible tools. We know we can survive for a very extended period of time under extreme stress and um, concern and worry and we can still navigate through it. You know, I remember when COVID started and they said, okay, we're going to be two weeks. I thought that's never going to happen. We're not going to slow down for two weeks, you know, and we're almost to the two year mark here. So, you know, you, you don't realize, you know, at the time I thought we can't go two weeks without criminal justice operating at a hundred percent. 
you know, there's just no way and there's no way anybody would ever shut us down. And they did. And we survived and we navigated and we were still able to deliver justice every day. We were able to reach our victims every day and provide them with services and opportunities to heal. And so you do, you adjust under the circumstances and you make the best of a situation. And that those tools, I think, are going to benefit America. And I think it also gave us an opportunity to say, okay, wait a minute, while we're here, we didn't have to incarcerate everybody because of COVID. So low-level offenses weren't coming in that traditionally had in the past um, because of COVID. We didn't need to fill the jails with people that, um, you know, were potentially going to bring COVID in or take COVID back out. So we saw criminal justice reform being implemented each and every day with COVID. We changed every bit of the business that we did and we managed to survive. Um, and really crime, violent crime is down seven and a half percent. I think in my County, what went up was homicides. And we missed that. We missed that opportunity to really engage with what is this going to look like when the entire family, kids are home all day long, parents are in the house all day long, maybe living with multiple generations here in San Joaquin County, about 25% of my population lives at or near the poverty level. Another 15% can afford a $400 medical emergency. And now we're going to stick everybody at home with no tools or resources, economic insecurity, uh, health and wellness insecurity, and think that things aren't going to escalate. You know, we missed that opportunity to really provide that support and mental health services. So I think that now that we're getting people back to work, we're getting people stabilized. Um, I, I think we still have some insecurity about housing, and that's going to play out with the moratorium, and we'll see how that goes. Um, but we're going to keep working with people and keep reminding people, and we're going to be out in the communities. We are, we're working in partnership with our community and faith-based organizations, as well as our law enforcement partners, to get out there and start having conversations with people and say, what do you want criminal justice to look like? And it's time we listen to them. We shouldn't be playing fear-mongering because every time you talk about reform, an anti-reformist will come out and say, oh, people are going to die. Children are going to be harmed. That's not a conversation. That's fear-mongering. And it's cowardly because it prevents people from really sitting down and thinking, okay, wait, what do we want for criminal justice? And it's interesting. I've had friends that are very, very, very pro-tough on crime until their loved one is arrested. And then they want me to, is there something you can do? This is going to ruin his or her life. A felony conviction has 4,900 consequences in California, including economics, housing, and employment. If you give my son or daughter this conviction, he'll never be able to work or she'll never have a job or she can't get her license. She can't become, you know, a real estate agent, a nurse, a doctor, a lawyer, whatever, the, a barber, whatever the case may be. Can't you do something? They, everybody makes a mistake. And that's what's interesting about criminal justice is that it's a very personal journey. If you're a victim or harmed by a crime, you want something in return. And I understand that. I'm a survivor. I understand. I've been a victim of a crime, and I know what that feels like. I want something back. I want control. I want the ability to cause the same harm to that person as they caused me. And that is how we've been trained and taught as, as a society. And I, it's normal, and that's okay. But then when you stop and think about it, okay, but I also want to make sure the person that harmed me, the person that sexually assaulted me, never does it to another woman again. And so how do I do that? And my gut would be lock them up and throw away the keys. I, I hear that all the time. But we're not going to do that. You know, eventually somebody's going to get out. So when they get out, I sure as heck 
don't want him to be more violent than he was on that day. I sure as heck don't want him to harm anybody. And that's what they tell us all the time. So if we're going to achieve what victims want, what survivors, people with lived experience are telling us is make this person better so they never do this harm again. And how do we do that? And it can involve incarceration and jail and prison and stuff like that. I'm not saying do away with that at all. I'm just saying when we do something, we need to do it well and we need to deliver to our communities people that are coming back out with more tools, more resources, and more capability of doing good versus harm. So I, I like a lot of what, what you said there because, you know, my experience in this uh, realm has been that people don't really know what happens in the criminal justice system until they get involved in the criminal justice system. And as you pointed out, their entry point is usually they're a victim or a loved one is a victim. But their other entry point is that their family member or themselves get accused of a crime and all of a sudden they see the world through very different lenses. Um, and so all of a sudden uh, you, you get people that weren't paying attention and they start paying attention because, hey, my loved one is facing all this time and, and this doesn't make any sense to me. Uh, and people will come to me and they'll say, hey, wait a second, is this how it's supposed to work? And I say, unfortunately, that's, uh, that's par for the course. Um, and they say, well, what can we do about it? So, so I get that. Um, that is, you know, unfortunately, you know, you made another good point about the lack of civics, but I actually think it's not even just the lack of civics education. I think it's until people experience something, they don't really understand it. Uh, it's one thing to understand something academically. It's another thing to actually go through it. Um, I want to uh, shift courses uh, because uh, we're, we're getting close to our end point. But um, I was down in Stockton on Tuesday at a press conference uh, for an officer-involved shooting. And I know there have been kind of a number of uh, controversial uh, police moves. Um, you know, one, your office a couple weeks ago sent out a press release uh, that um, officers were indicted. Um, I think it was a minor. Um, and uh, they, uh, they beat up a minor and the officers are charged. I don't know if you can comment on that since it's still uh, pending. Um, but uh, I mean, more, more specifically, I think, you know, your general approach to excessive force cases and officer involved shootings and what your office might do differently than other DA offices uh, would be of interest to me. Well, you know, we have a protocol. So anytime that there's a, an officer-involved critical incident, it's a multi-agency uh, protocol team. So it would be my office. I have, a, I have my own police department, if you will. I have the Bureau of Investigations, which is about 55 sworn officers with 22 years on average experience working in law enforcement. Um, I also have an attorney assigned to ensure that the process is fair and equitable. Then we partner with the employer agency as well as, so if it was a Stockton Police Department incident, we would partner with the Sheriff's Office, uh, Highway Patrol, and Department of Justice. So 
so that we have city, county, and state um, oper- you know, engaged. The other thing is, is each team has to have a representative from each agency. So it's not an employer investigating an employee. That's never going to be a good pathway, and that should not be occurring because there's an inherent conflict. One, this is your team member, and you might be friends. You might socialize. You might do things with them outside the office. That's a conflict. And two, it's a conflict because the city is probably looking at some civil liability. And so there's a financial and an emotional conflict. And it already is difficult because, you know, as you as a podcast, if you had to sit and do an investigation of another podcaster, you would there's no way you wouldn't be looking over there going, well, that could be me. What would I be doing if I was in that shoes, you know, or sitting in that chair? So you have to really make sure that you have checks and balances to make sure that this investigation is fair and that it is driven by and and use the same tools that we use every day in every investigation that we have. So we have multiple agencies involved. So one agency cannot go do an interview without the other agencies present to ensure that best practices are being used, best tools and resources are being used, and that it's a fair and equitable process. So when we interview an officer, there'll be members of the Bureau of Investigation, uh, the Bureau of maybe the Sheriff's Office and maybe CHP, DOJ does all of our evidence. So every piece of evidence is actually processed through the state, which I have no authority or jurisdiction over. Um, And those multiple levels um, allow us to ensure the integrity of the process and that we're seeking the best result possible. I also send an attorney over to watch all of the interviews. And if at any time we felt that there was any misconduct or misappropriate uh, questions that were not fair and equitable that we would be offering, asking of any other person involved in a case involving a critical incident, I actually even have the authority to take the entire investigation over. So we've had that protocol since 1994, thanks to Justice Murray, who's now on the uh, Third District Court of Appeals, but um, it is a, it's a very valuable tool, and that should be mandated across the state because I still hear of cities and counties where it's an employer-employee agency. And what this does is it, it builds trust in our community because you would have to have the state, the county, and the city all working collaboratively to create a false narrative or a false decision, and that's just going to be impossible. So um, I, I, I'm grateful that I have inherited that system and that we use it on a regular basis. Then the deputy district attorney assigned to it does an initial evaluation of the quick case after all the evidence is collected and the reports are submitted. That then goes to a diverse community uh, committee that reviews and makes a recommendation. And then the file comes to me. And then we work collaboratively to make a determination. Can we prove this case beyond a reasonable doubt? And can we get 12 jurors to, to believe this? So it's tough because throughout history, the laws have been designed in order to protect law enforcement. And so if you look at excessive force, which is a violation of Penal Code Section 149, there's not even a jury instruction on it. Most Penal Code sections, if I charge you with murder, there's a tons of jury instructions on violation of Penal Code Section 187 to wit murder. When it comes to this, we don't have it. And the three big areas that you're seeing that every DA needs to be trained in and every DA's office needs to lean into is the use of force, whether it's reasonable or excessive. And I think one thing the public needs to know is law enforcement can lawfully use force when it is justifiable. So sometimes we'll get these videos and people are like, they shouldn't have done that. Well, they can by law, by the letter of the law. And that's what guides me and, you know, allows me to move forward one way or another. And by law, they're entitled to use that justifiable force based on the totality of the circumstances and what's going on in that moment. When it becomes excessive, then 
I have, and then we become engaged and we look at it and determine whether or not it is to the point where it gives rise to criminal prosecution. The other area is going to be perjury. So where you're seeing false information in crime reports, um, and these have to be material facts um, where the individual knowingly put in false information, you'll see it in search warrants, affidavits, um, and those kinds of situations. So that's another lane that people are, you know, DAs across the nation are looking at. And then the last lane is when you have a fatality. Um, and what is that? And that's going to either be a manslaughter, a second degree or first degree murder, or it's going to be justifiable. And it's extremely difficult as a district attorney to tell a mother or a father or siblings or spouses that even though their loved one who is everything to them and is important to our community, um, on that day, what the officers did was reasonable and justifiable based upon the totality of the circumstances and the key case law and, and penal code sections that are out there. Because how do you tell a mother that the taking of your son's life is justified? It is a horrible, I think it's one of the worst parts of my job, but the law tells me what I can and cannot do, and I have to follow the law. And I think what's important is that when we do have individuals who are behind the, wearing the badge and commit the crime, we need to remember two things. One, that we are here in San Joaquin County holding them accountable, and we're being transparent about it. We're releasing the entire grand jury transcript so anybody and everybody can read what we just did. We also want people to remember that in every profession, there are people who are in it for the wrong reason, people who make decisions that are harmful. I'm an attorney. There's lots of attorneys who are in it who should never have been attorneys. There's lots of doctors and accountants and, and garbage collectors, you know, whatever business you're in. That doesn't mean the entire industry is flawed. And it, we have to continue to work and figure out ways to work collaboratively with law enforcement to ensure public safety. We have to get away from the past tactics of the unions and associations that are associated with law enforcement using fear as a, as a tool to guide decision making. Fear is never a good place to be when making a decision. Knowledge, research, data. That's what we need to be giving to our communities in order for them to make an informed decision as to what they, what they want and what they need. So I think it's important that we have those conversations. And I think every district attorney is struggling with this because I work every day with law enforcement and I get the privilege of seeing the incredible work they do, life-saving, game-changing, using de-escalation tools and better tools and resources, not citing people for, for things like, you know, that cost them $1,500 to get out of knowing that it would drive them into homelessness and poverty, instead working with them to find solutions. Last night, as I mentioned earlier, when I was volunteering in the homeless camp and we, a car drove up and literally threw us an elderly woman out of the car with dementia. Law enforcement, I immediately called and said, what are we going to do? And we work collaboratively to find a solution. We have her in shelter. We're working with adult protective services. We're looking to find her a memory care. She went to the Gospel Center, which is an amazing organization here in San Joaquin County. They attached people to work with her. She's showered, clothes, food. That's government at its best. That is government okay, at its best. I'm sorry best. to cut you off, but unfortunately, we are out of time. Um, no problem. I would love to drill down on, on that issue a little more with you maybe next time we talk. Uh, but I want to thank you for coming on uh, our show and, uh, and sharing some of the work that uh, you guys are doing down in San Joaquin County. 
So we would love for you to come down anytime because we, we, one of the things too, if you have a minute, you know, when, in the next couple of weeks, let's talk about reentry. That is the huge thing when we, we cannot drive and drop off somebody on the street with $200 and expect a reentry plan to be working. So um, let's, I would love for you to come and see ready to work. It's an amazing program doing great work and uh, we would love to have you. So please come down anytime you want. And we appreciate the Davis Vanguard. You are probably one of, if not the best in the state in discussing and challenging and being critical and, but in a constructive manner of cr- criminal justice. So we, we are grateful for you guys. We are truly, truly grateful. Well, thanks so much. This has been Everyday Injustice. I'm your host, David Greenwald. That was DA Tori Verber Salazar from San Joaquin County. Always one of my favorites to listen to. Join us again next time for more tales from the injustice system. Thank you to George Powell and Norman Mousequake Barrett for the use of our opening Everyday Injustice. You can see more of George's music at www.justiceforgeorgepowell.com. That's justiceforgeorgepowell, all one word, dot com.